Is it behind the sofa or is it? Hello, you're on the terrace. We are the companion podcast to Night Terrace, the time travel comedy for your ears. Hope you've been enjoying the last couple of episodes. In this one, we will be dismantling episode three of series one, Time of Death, written by Ben McKenzie. I'm Vaya, I'm sci-fi curious, and I'm a neighbour's enabler. And for this chat, I have Ben McKenzie here, co-creator, writer of the episode, and voice of Eddie Jones. Hello. Eddie's back as well. It, it, just, it just happens, sorry. <laughs> uh, much like Anastasia, we try and get rid of Eddie, but here he comes again. Yeah. And I have the sound wizard of Night Terrace, the engineer of all the soundscapes, David Ashton. Hello. I've never. That's how I do it. We've never. No, real talk though. We've never had you do live foley before. Brainwave, Ben. We need. You need to get a bonus episode happening of David recreating one of like the pilot episode of Night Terrace just with his own face. <laughs> <laughs> like, do the house taking off. <laughs> Boom. This is what I actually do. I just do that and then I put it through a machine and it sounds better. <laughs> well, I will ask David in a moment about some of his processes in creating the world of Night Terrace. But first, we need to get stuck into a little overview of what went down in episode three. And one more thing you guys need to know about me is that I have Franny Fisher connections. What? And I'm coming for you. <laughs> have you seen a doctor about your Franny Fisher connections? <laughs> I've got a case of the Franny Fishers. Is this a, is this a thing where you, you teach a teach a person to Franny, uh, and then they never? No, that's not right. Give a person a Franny, and they no, you, you know, know what I mean. <laughs> but they've prescribed me a cloche uh, for that. So okay, time of death is an actual thrill for me to discuss. It's firstly, it's an episode set in the past, which is my favourite flavour of time travel setting because it's going back to a known past. So it's, I'm comfortable. There's no, there's no aliens. There's no made-up planets. As much as they're fun, um, we're back in the 1920s. We there's certain cues we recognise. But the other reason I enjoy this episode in particular is because it's a clear spoof of Miss Fisher's murder mysteries, which employed me for a year of my life. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I'm, should I be embarrassed now? <laughs> no, it's bloody great. So we have unwilling adventurer Dr. Anastasia Black with her sidekick Eddie transported back to 1929 in a little English town called Lyme Regis where they get embroiled in two murder mysteries, that of local lord Geoffrey Smythe and also their friend slash mascot slash unexplained entity Sue. And they happen upon overconfident amateur sleuth Miss Leanna Baker who Anastasia immediately scoffs at for her Holmesian theatrics. So what ends up happening is Anastasia and Eddie wind up, I think, with the help of the Night Terrace house, back in this kind of Groundhog Day-esque loop where they go back to the immediate past to piece together Sue's clues to solve the mystery. <laughs> oh, wow. Now I'm thinking about Sue's clues as like the kid's spin-off yeah. of Night Terrace. <laughs> and she'd just be like, is it behind the sofa? <laughs> or is it? Like, I don't, like, what's, yeah. what's through the round window? Twinkle, yes, twinkle, twinkle, what twinkle. is through the round window? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so ultimately they work out that ultimately Miss Baker, the super sleuth, is actually the culprit and is 
uh, offing people in the community that are universally hated, but she kind of gets off on that as well. Yeah. We have this great perspective from Anastasia in this episode who comes in and immediately calls Miss Baker on her bullshit. Anastasia has this perspective of seeing through her act. As Douglas Adams says, to paraphrase him, the one thing we really can't stand is a smart ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Sita. Fascinating instrument. The Honourable John Starling, MP, was murdered with a sitar. It looked like a heart attack, but I realised the strings of his newly gifted instrument had been coated with a rare extract found only in... Uh, Look, I'd love to hear about yet another murder you've solved, but I really need to find Lady Susanna before... But she would give people the irrits, and it's nice, it's refreshing to have our heroine be able to step in and go, hang on a minute, anyone can do this. I'm just observing... Circumstantial evidence. I guess the irony is that Anastasia often does end up standing there explaining what really happened yeah. <laughs> at the end of our episodes now that I'd come to think about well, it. I was very careful when writing this one to make sure she didn't do any of that in this episode. Like, and, and she does. She has this specialist knowledge, though, as well, that other people don't have, which I think sets her apart a bit. And it was her yeah. job to deal with these problems. I think that's where a lot of her annoyance comes from is that this is an amateur. And she doesn't set up, I've brought you all together to explain it to <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, no, she hates that so much. Grandstanding. What I love about Anastasia, which is one of five million things, is that she she is brilliant and capable, but capable, but she's also humble and matter of fact about the fact that anyone can be competent if they have a certain set of skills or if they research something or if they're experts in something. You can do these things. It's yeah. not magic. Yeah, she she sees herself as competent, but not extraordinary. Mm. Like she doesn't think of herself as a superhero. She yeah, which I, I think is a nice grounding to her character where it, and it kind of offsets the fact that she she can come across as a bit arrogant at times, which is also fun, like, you know. But she's not uh, dismissive of other people because she thinks she's better, mm. but because she thinks you're just as good as me, why are you relying on me? Yeah, she's dismissive of them because she sees them as not living up to their own potential in a way yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And a few times I get worried, like, because it could dangerously veer into that... Um, like hashtag as a woman, uh, the underselling yourself, going, oh, no, it's no big deal. I just did that. Like, no, you were amazing and you were intelligent. But it actually, you don't have to be the best or most outstanding. You just have to show up and get the job done and that's fine. Mm. Now, Ben. Yes. Were you a Miss Fisher viewer? I, You know, it, weirdly, I almost worked on the show. <gasps> I was called up to audition. I mean, I say I almost worked on the show. I auditioned for it. That's not the same thing at all. Um, but I, I did. I auditioned. And it was the first I'd ever heard of Miss Fisher, actually. I had a bunch of friends who were fans of the books. were very excited that they were making a TV show. Yeah, based on the books by Kerry Greenwood. Yes. And, uh, in fact, I think I have some mutual friends with Kerry Greenwood. So, if you've, if you've ever listened to it, Kerry, I'm so sorry. Uh, no, I wasn't particularly... Obviously, I made a lot of references to the show. But... Um, but yeah, my first encounter with it was actually being asked to audition uh, at the ABC for um, one of her mates who works on the docks. And I had no idea about who these characters were. She's got a lot of mates. And I, <laughs> and I asked a bunch. But you know, she's got those two, there's those two guys who end up being like her driver. Yeah, Sess and Bert. Yeah, Sess and Bert. And I forget which one I was auditioning for. I think the <laughs> older one. And I asked a few friends about these characters and they were like, yeah, they're like blonde and they're like all buff and kind of gritty. And, and I'm like, 
why the hell are they auditioning me? <laughs> like, I was very confused. But it was it was a fun audition. And I, I think they I, called I can a lot picture of you as a 1920s dock worker, though. Oh, that's well, that's very flattering, David. Thank you. Um, I so could the casting directors, apparently, at least briefly. Uh, <laughs> but obviously, I didn't get the role, and um, it was just nice to get asked to audition because I I don't. I haven't done a lot of television, only a little bit here and there. But that was my introduction to the world of Franny Fisher. And I read up about the series. I have to admit that I had never read, I haven't read any of the books. I'm not a big crime fiction reader. I have watched a couple episodes of the TV show and I quite enjoyed it. And I also worked on the video game. Uh, what? In a very small capacity. I, um, t- I was a tester for Miss Fisher and the Deathly Maze. It's available on smartphones. Um, Stop it. It's, it's, a, it's more of a graphic adventure. You do tap things, but you have to find clues and you have to put the clues together to determine um, what, you know, to solve the mystery. Uh, and it is obviously a murder because she investigates murders. Well, one of my tasks as a lowly member of the script department is I helped put together the Cluedo game. It, there's oh, a, they, wow. They released a Miss Fisher Cluedo and I helped write up all the synopses for the characters and the Surely story. that would have been good fun. It was so fun. So leaving Miss Fisher aside for the moment, were there other influences that informed this script? Yeah. Then? Look, the, it, this episode particularly has a real special place in my heart because it was the first one I wrote for the show and basically it was an excuse for me to combine a whole bunch of things that I love together. So it's set in Lyme Regis because I love particularly early dinosaur fossil history and Lyme Regis is in... Um, it's, in it's, it's where... Um, uh, a lot of the early fossils were found in the really? cliffs there. Yeah, um, and it didn't. It's not in the episode at all. That doesn't come up, but it's it's a fact. Uh, so that's why I said it there. Um, I love I love a good murder mystery, and partly I wrote that also. I wanted that aspect in there um, because my grandmother loves murder mysteries. I thought if I'm going to get her to listen to this anyway, it, this is going <laughs> to be the in. Um, I still don't know if she has, but hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll bridge the technology gap. We'll get her. We'll get her to listen. Um, and just the time travel stuff, which I love so much, um, but I really wanted to write one. I'm kind of obsessed with the idea that you can write great time travel stories without paradoxes in them. And so this is a time travel story with no paradox. And as I'm, uh, as I'm one of those annoying people who will point out, like there's really only one mainstream time travel film that doesn't have any paradoxes in it. What's that? Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <gasps> oh. Uh, we, and it's comedy, right? They, there's no paradoxes in it. I mean, they, they do a bunch of time travel stuff that's very weird, but there's nothing that they do that contradicts itself. Like everything is self in, is internally consistent. There's no butterfly effect or that ripples throughout the generations. They just run around and do stuff. Yeah, so it's just assumed like that, you know, um, Billy the Kid and um, Socrates, and uh, if I can call him that, and, uh, you know, all those other historical figures, Joan of Arc, they always had this little trip into the future and then went back to their normal lives and it never affected right. history. It's just part of the tapestry of what happens in the Bill and Ted universe. And it's and I and I kind of love that. I'm a big fan of that. So um, it's not a writing shortcut to make it less complicated, Ben? No, <laughs> no, uh, absolutely, absolutely not. Um, no, but I, it, it's just, it's a challenge. You know, I set myself constraints and I and I enjoyed those too. So yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of my favourite things. Does writing about time travel mess with your head? Uh, look, it could have messed with it a lot more. I remember one of the one of the early ideas, and I think this was John's idea that we had for this episode, that when they got to the gathering everyone together to decide who the murderer was, that every single suspect would be Eddie and Anastasia in a different disguise. <laughs> and I I did sit down initially and tried to plot that version of the episode and I, I just came back to John and said, no, we're not doing that. 
it's too hard. Was there also a bit of, I'm getting a sense of Anastasia trying to figure out what motivates this house as an entity to mm. transport them. The house is almost like a helpful pet, like a lassie or a flipper. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of that. And, and you know, just like the, because it's one of the earliest episodes, we had a little list of things that we wanted it to accomplish. So we wanted to explore that weird time traveliness. We also wanted to, by episode three, really establish that there wasn't a good explanation for what Sue is. And so this episode also had that aspect where uh, Anastasia comes up with that explanation, which is largely based on this great old um, TV um, drama called The Stone Tape, which is written by the same guy who wrote... Uh, Quatermass. Yeah, Quatermass. Um, Nigel Neal. Nigel Neal, thank you. Uh, and it's great. And it's, and it's about that idea that certain configurations of geography can record psychic echoes of oh. people. And, um, and so that's where that idea comes from and then that turns out to be nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. And so it's like, oh, here's another explanation. So by this stage, we really wanted to establish that we just don't know what Sue is. She's appeared three times in three different forms and we just don't know what that means. And so this is really establishing that even Anastasia has to admit she doesn't know what's going on with this impossible person. And in that same vein, Eddie's trying to ascribe meaning to the situation that they're in. Like, well, the house is making us solve a quest. We can't just come and go. We have to come here and serve a purpose and help people. Yeah. And in this case, we're going to help solve this crime for them. Yeah. And that was that was a little bit of, that was a little nod to Quantum Leap, another one of my favourite time travel shows. But he's not right. You know, like the house doesn't care. But the house, the house does react. And I think we actually had a lot of discussions and, and uh, we, there's, I think we said in an earlier episode, we wanted to keep stuff about the house a mystery. And there's some things we still have not really revealed even, you know, after you've listened to both seasons that have been made at the moment. Um, but we also made a few decisions about things we didn't want the house to be because we, we were also very conscious that the basic concept of the show in a lot of ways is, is quite similar to Doctor Who and we wanted to distinguish ourselves. And there is that idea in Doctor Who that the TARDIS is alive and that's fairly um, explicit, particularly in later episodes, um, you know, in the last five years or so. Um, but even before that, the way that the TARDIS gets talked about is it's a living thing. And we didn't want that for the house, we, or at least we want to keep it ambiguous. And I, and I, I don't know, there's still lots of stuff we probably have never decided about how the house works. But in this one, we wanted to suggest that the house does things on its own, but does that mean it's alive? But it doesn't have like two windows that are eyes and a door that's a mouth. No. <laughs> Like it's currently in my head. No. <laughs> like those Muppet houses on Sesame Street that talk. I love those. So did you guys, when you were plotting the episodes, decide, well, we've got to do a murder mystery with an amateur detective? Uh, no, it was more that we wanted to do an historical episode. And um, I I was keen to have a go because I'm a big old nerd and I like researching things, as we've previously established on this podcast. And... I yeah so I sort of got into that. I also we also wanted to have a sort of timey wimey time travel weirdness episode. We didn't want the whole show to be about that because that you know if you do it for too long it gets very convoluted and complicated. We just wanted to have fun with it. This is is this what Anastasia calls temporal paradoxicology? Yes, yes. <laughs> so they go back. I my frame of reference is. Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry Potter, yeah. where Hermione has, uses the time turner to go back and then she sees herself and then... It's very much a similar kind of thing. And it's one like one of the things that I, I feel like this is, my, this is my time to point this out. I bloody love time travel. Like it is my, <laughs> one of my favourite tropes in all of fiction. Um, it's, one, it's one of the reasons why I love Doctor Who. 
Um, and most of a lot of my favorite science fiction, if not most of it, uh, certainly involves time travel. So it was quite painful for me to do these episodes where we decided Eddie would hate time travel and says so. Um, so I'm just putting it out there. I'm quite the opposite, but but I actually think that's fun because I think if you were, it's fun as a thing to read and watch and and have entertain you. I think if you did get sucked into it you probably would find it super annoying and, and complicated and confusing. And I did enjoy that you used costumes to point out that the characters were watching themselves because it would be hard to go, oh, there we are, we are standing over there. But it was handy to go, oh, there's, I'm dressed as a lion and there's a dodo and that helped. Thanks for that hel- helping hand. Well, you know, and that, that serves a practical purpose too because... You, you can't, you obviously can't visually display the scene. So you need some sort of sound. And if you want to introduce the characters and have them non-recognisable, they have to, they can't just be physically in disguise. They've got to have some reason why their voices sound different. And so we had this idea that, oh, there's some fancy dress costumes and you, their voices are a bit muffled, which if I remember rightly, David, we just did in the studio by sticking our hands in front of our mouths while we yeah, were speaking. Yeah, I think so. No way. Yeah, sometimes you don't need a technological solution. No, sometimes it, that's the best way to do it. Well, okay, that brings me to sound advice, mm. which I'm going to get from David. First, I've got to ask you, how did you go about creating the overall feel of the series as a whole? Ooh. Or did you just jump in episode by episode? I think it was pretty much episode by episode. Yeah, we, we did the first one first. We recorded a whole bunch all together and then I started editing them and there were voices missing, people who couldn't be there on our big recording days. So if you... We'll listen to the very first draft of the very first episode. It has... Usually Dave Lamb. Yeah, Dave, Dave Lamb and Amanda Buckley read in the missing voices for us. Um, uh, I think all the phone messages were me on the, in that first episode in the <laughs> yeah. first draft. We kept one, at least one of yours, didn't we? We kept one of mine, so I, I do have a little voice cameo in the first one. Yeah. And then I think I did like the whole first series as a draft and sent it out episode by episode to the others and got feedback and whatever. And... Yeah, I mean, I, I listened to some other audio dramas just to make sure that we were matching the quality of other people, particularly Big Finish, you know, we, I think we've mentioned before, do a, do a lot of audio drama um, in a similar sort of realm of science fiction. Yeah. They don't usually do comedy. And I actually, actually was surprised to find that theirs sounded very different to ours. I think just the compression and whatever, just... just technical stuff it had a different sound but um but i was still happy with what we did quality wise so we just went with it yeah i think too they're they're trying to particularly with their doctor who stuff which is what we've mostly listened to as big doctor who nerds they they are trying to make it sound and feel like old school doctor who a lot of the Mm. time and that gives it a very definite sound which we were not trying to do we were trying to be our own thing so it does sound a bit different yeah there's, there's sort of a balance between uh the sort of old school bbc radiophonic workshop uh, sci-fi sounds where it's all, you know, bleeps and zaps and and synthesizer-y sort of sounds, and a more modern production which, where you you combine a lot of sort of real-world sounds, even when you're creating like a spaceship or something, you'll combine real-world sounds like a jet engine with with a little bit of science fiction sounds like the the buzz and hum or whatever that are electronic sounds. That's more the modern style that we were aiming for, yeah. Hey, had you done this sort of production before in terms of a fictional drama or was this... Um, I've done a bit. I did some work for Radio Australia at the ABC. Radio Australia is the service that, that it used to be played on shortwave to countries around Australia. They don't do it on shortwave anymore. It's gone all digital. But um, I actually did a series of, of English lessons for people 
from non-English speaking backgrounds. Um, so we do like a version in Cantonese and a version in, in um, Vietnamese or whatever, where the, the instructions were in that language. But then there'd be a little drama in English that people could listen to and they learn the language through that. So I was doing that with, you know, voices and sound effects. And I remember while I was there, one of the, the, the standard Chinese version had been downloaded a million times. It passed its millionth download. Wow. Because there's a lot of people in China and, you know, learning English is, is very prestigious, which it occurred to me that's like way more than, you know, Red Simon's ever rated at, at, <laughs> on 774 or, or, you know, anything else the, the ABC did on the radio. For, for the uninitiated local radio presenter and TV bad... X-radio X presenter. X-radio presenter and X... It was on at the time. X-TV villainous judge. That's true. <laughs> on yeah. light, light entertainment. And a former member of Skyhooks. And the, the other thing I'd done a bit of was uh, sound for movies, um, short films and, and documentaries and things. And sometimes, you know, short films, are, it's similar. You add in all the sound effects and whatever. Although it's quite different when you can see what's happening to just being able to hear it. Is there much of that from what we know as that old school Foley technique when we, we see on TV people, you know, banging coconuts together and standing on ro- walking on rocks and that's, does that's, that go on? That goes on in movies, yeah. Um, in, in films, they, they capture the dialogue on set as much as possible and as much as possible capture it with no accompanying sound effects and things and everything is added afterwards. You know, all the sounds of their clothing rustling or... or footsteps and so on would be added, not on low-budget kind of productions that I'm working, but on a professional production, it's added by, yeah, someone in the studio with a tray full of sand doing footsteps in sand and then they, they, they'll they go and get a different pair of shoes to do a different character and, and so on. Whereas for this, the, you've got the seaside soundscape, yeah. that with you would, how would you draw, how would you put that together? It's usually a case of you, you go to a sound effects my collection of sound effects that I've collected over the years from commercial sound effects libraries and things and I will try and create something new by combining them so I'll take some seagulls from here and some waves from here and and hopefully the combined effect is something you haven't heard before because I don't really want to just take one thing off the shelf and it's like you there's a there's a hospital background that I, that I've used and it has like a little PA announcement Dr. Davis, please come to the surgery, <laughs> Dr. Davis. And every now and again I hear that in a TV series in a movie. Oh. And, um, and it's like, I don't know, oh, okay, they got that same Canadian sound effects library that the, <laughs> we used to use back in the day. So to try, so try and avoid that, you, you layer things up. So it's pulling the ingredients together. So you're not just pulling out beach atmosphere. You might, yeah, you yeah. build the atmosphere. That's right. And, and that's especially important when you have like, a, we have multiple episodes where they're in a sort of forest environment or something and you want this forest to sound different to the last forest. Or even in this one, like the birds, when they're sort of away from the beach and they're walking, um, I think, I think um, Eddie and Sue run into each other. Mm, yeah. You know, the birds in the background are different to what you hear at the seaside where the house Ooh. is. It is fun to go back and re-listen. I do recommend an, another listen to just really focus on the audio tapestry that's going on in the background. Yeah. It's a fun game. Well, I want to highlight a little segment I'm going to call Talking Black. Okay. Focusing on my favourite lines from Anastasia. One of the lines that shocked me actually was when she warns Eddie, who's suddenly smitten on Miss Baker, never have sex in the past because I've never heard in 25 years. stay away from her big reveal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
That's one of my favourite gags in this episode. In 25 years, I have not heard Susan say the word sex because you can't on Neighbours. She would just have euphemisms. Like Carl, Carl and I are going to play with the blue box. But <laughs> I, it was saucy hearing her say that word, Jackie, yeah. as Anastasia. Yeah, it's funny. We, we never made any strict rules, I don't think, about, about how how dirty we can make our jokes, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Generally, we, we, again, it's probably the influence of things like Doctor Who. Y- you keep it kid-friendly because, yeah. but, but for adults. But then occasionally it'll, it'll go a little, bit, a little bit blue. And, of course, whenever Ben's writing, Eddie seems to flirt with somebody, which is funny. <laughs> Not every time. <laughs> Literally only twice out of four episodes. Okay, yeah, that's true. So, uh, come on. Uh, <laughs> and you have to do it if you're doing a Franny parody because I worked on an episode where she got together with someone in a wine vat, like in a (laughs) vat of grapes. She's just made of charisma. Um, I got to ask about Virginia Gay. Yeah. A brilliant actor in Australia and has recently come off of a run as Calamity Jane on stage, Mm. which she just smashed that role to pieces. It was incredible and delivers... One of the best line readings I've ever heard in my life, which was... He was your lover until he called an end to the affair. (gasps) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, and you know what? That's not... What take was it? She did a few of those. And I think you didn't even use the most over-the-top one, did you, David? It might be It might be like the day spa line in episode one. Yeah. It's just we have to take the second highest one because the highest pitched one is just too much. I'm pretty sure there was one version where the word lover lasted for about 30 seconds. Like it was, <laughs> it was intense. But it was so wonderful to work with her and watch her perform. I, I, I've been lucky enough to work with Virginia a few times on uh, various things, um, which is why we, I wanted her to be in this. I, I had her in mind for the role when I was writing it. And um, again, you know, I think it, it's it's really great to cast someone who you know is great, who would do a great um, version of this kind of character, who you also know because of, you know, the stupidities of how television and film work is probably not going to get cast as that kind of character. Yeah. And you're like, but you should be because you're amazing. Yes. And we can cast whoever we want. So we're casting you. And yeah, she just came in and owned it and nailed it. And she she had a great time. She was so funny. Yeah, I, we, we actually wanted to get her back for series two for another role, but unfortunately she was unavailable. And um, I'd love to work with her again. We're doing she's, a heartbeat. She's off in America now or something, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's in LA. Um, so if you're listening to this, Virginia, good luck and thank you again so Come much. Come back soon. And if you're listening to this America, you don't deserve her. <laughs> um, but, if, but if you see her name in something, go and see it. Yes. Uh, and you also have comedian Andrew McClelland yeah. as... More or less a version of himself, which is a dapper gent, a role he was born for. Now, he does come back in series two playing, would you believe, a steamship captain. Um, Perfect. Yeah. And and I think, you know, with some of the comedians that we cast, um, and this is not to cast aspersions on them in terms of their acting range, but you often, you, you cast a comedian because you know they can do the thing that you want them to do. And, yeah, he nailed this. It was great. And I find with comedians, I've done a bit of comedy in the past myself, but you play a version of yourself. A caricature, yeah. On stage. So it's tapping into that expertise. And, you know, it's also part of the sort of practical realities of of how we made the show in that we didn't have rehearsal time. Like the rehearsal time was we would send people the script to read before they came in. 
and we didn't have a table read of every episode and we didn't have, we just did, we just cast people who we knew would be good in the roles. And so if we had a role that was a bit more out there, we cast somebody who we knew was a good actor. If we had a role that was a particular kind of archetype, we cast a comedian. And we and this is not hard and fast for everything, but I think it accounts for most of the casting that mm. we did. And and that was so we just knew that they would just come in and just do it. And uh, yeah, they both nailed it. So it was really fun because you'd, you'd hit record and start going and... You never quite knew what was going to... Sometimes it would be this hilarious over-the-top thing. Sometimes it would be a hilarious deadpan dry thing. You know, it's just... Yeah, we trusted people. Did you have someone on the day acting as a director and or giving notes or just you? did you just run with whatever takes were given? We... I think we kind of collectively... This why there's... I, I've thought about this a lot because we don't have a director credit in the show and I, I think that's partly because um, we... We all kind of, like the creative team in general kind of did it. Mm. I think John took the lead definitely on that and did the bulk of notes when we did need to do re-records. But usually David or myself or if the author of the episode was in the room or Petra often would have a couple of good ones. Yeah, Petra, a.k.a. Sue. Yes. Um, she she was very good at picking up some stuff that we missed. And um, yeah, so we'd all sort of just make little notes as we were going through. But John did the bulk of that because he wasn't performing. So he was in the booth with David and, and listening along. And David, you often had some too. Yeah, yeah, particularly, again, on the, on the ones I wrote because I could speak to my intentions. But again, most people we cast, you know, they, they have, everybody had great comedy sensibilities and they would read the script and pick up what we were putting down, so to speak. And it was very rare, you know, you'd have like maybe two or three lines an episode where it's like, okay, I think, can we do that again? Because I don't think you quite got what the intention of that line was. But mostly it was just like, can we pronounce that a bit differently? Can we try make that a bit bigger because it'll work better on audio? It was most, mostly that kind of stuff. There was also a great scene with Andrew McCullum that we had to cut from the episode. Oh, with the colonel, yeah. Was he the butler at that point? No, it was, it was um, Eddie and the colonel. And I, I think when I wrote it, I was initially thinking this is like a bit more setting the scene with the difficulties you have if you've met people out of order. And it was a fun little scene with Eddie not quite understanding the situation and the colonel definitely not. And, um, and it was fun, but it essentially, in the end, it wasn't necessary. Something had to go. The episode was too long. Yeah, you needed room for three more syllables of lover. <laughs> Did I hear you say murder? Oh, hello, Colonel. Yes, Sir Jeffrey's been murdered. But don't worry, I know you didn't do it. You know I... You dare accuse me? Ow! Sorry, Colonel, I, I just meant I know you hated him, but... Oh! Look, it, it's not like you were having an affair with him like the Countess. Or was that the butler? Confounded cheek! Oh! I'll thank you to keep your nonsense to yourself at afternoon tea. Afternoon tea? Is this answered later or is it a mystery? What the hell happened to Anastasia when she said she had a glimpse of her future and it was the worst thing that's ever happened to her? Season three. No! <laughs> yeah, we, we have not told you what that is. That is the <gasps> definite hint. And I think when, when I wrote this episode, I think I did... And and look, yeah, it might be something that we explore in the future. But yeah. I I um I definitely wrote it thinking that's a good hook for a future episode. But also, it's good to have that stuff where we refer to significant events in her past to show that this is not her first rodeo, right? She's had lots of adventures, and some of them maybe didn't go so well. And you've got to leave some plant some seeds for the fan fiction writers out there to right. grab onto. Exactly, exactly. So if anyone wants to write fan fiction about what happened, then. That'd be great. Send it in to us. I want to read it. Well, uh, we should provide the supplementary material for the audience to go and consume before coming back in for episode four next time, which is the outsourcing. I'm going to 
kick it off and obviously do the recommendation of Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. I think it's on Netflix at the moment. But particularly episode 12 has a special place in my heart. I had probably the most to do with that one in series two called Unnatural Habits and have a little close look for one of the surly nuns. There's more than one, but one of the surly nuns is Vaya Pashos. <laughs> wow. Okay. And uh, it was a great time. Ben? Well, I'd like to recommend if you like time travel um, and particularly time travel that mostly makes sense, I'm a big fan of the Canadian sci-fi series Continuum, particularly the first three seasons. Um, it gets a bit it gets a bit off off the rails, not in a bad way necessarily, but it goes off the chain in the last couple of seasons. But um, I really like that show, yeah. And also got a great female lead, um, really interesting bunch of characters and just a different idea of the future and why people might time travel than a lot of shows. And it's that rare thing, a sci-fi show sh- uh, shot in Toronto which is actually set in Toronto, <laughs> in oh, Canada. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so I love it. I think it's really great. Um, that's on, uh, last time I checked, it's on Netflix as well. I recommend it, Continuum. It's great. David? Ben mentioned earlier The Stone Tapes by Nigel Neal. I reckon that's worth looking up. Looking up. Still holds up. Yeah. It's really, like, yeah. N- Nigel Neal also wrote uh, a teleplay, which has sadly been lost. It's one of these uh, programs that got junked by the BBC, called The Road, which is also... Um, like the stone tape, it's a, it's a sort of ghost story and it's a sort of, um, there's a time travel element to it, which was recently turned into a drama by BBC Radio, which I haven't heard, but I am definitely planning to look that one up. Sounds real good. So that's a recommendation for myself. <laughs> yeah, okay, don't forget. It's a, it's a reminder. This, is just, this section is just notes we'll put in our phones to remind ourselves to do later. Yeah. If I really need to remember something, I just say it on a podcast. Eddie, did you have anything to add? I really hate time travel. It makes no sense. For more info on this podcast and Night Terrace, you can have a look at nightterrace.com or search Night Terrace at bbc.co.uk, grab BBC Sounds or have a listen on BBC Radio iPlayer app. You can tweet us and ask questions about the production at Night Terrace and use the hashtag on the terrace. If you want to chat about the episodes, I've got a podcast all about the soap opera Neighbours. It's a hoot. Neighbours, the Neighbours recap podcast at neighbourspod.com. Join us next ep for a chat about the outsourcing and another cup of tea on the terrace. Bye. You have been listening to On the Terrace, a Splendor Chaps production. Find more entertainment for your ears at splendorchaps.com.